This is an ABC podcast. Have you heard of the Dunbar number? It's the number of social connections one person can maintain at any one time. Well, it turns out this plays out at work. Hello, I'm Lisa Leong, and as we'll hear in this episode of This Working Life, it's all about connections. There came a point when they walked into the cafeteria and they just didn't know who anybody was anymore. And at that point, they bailed out and left and went and did something else. Robin Dunbar has written a few books, including Friends. His new book, The Social Brain, The Psychology of Successful Groups, comes out next year. How is Robin's research relevant for your workplace? What are the optimum numbers for teams and factories? And how important are social connections and friendships at work? And how do these affect our productivity? Well, I'm Robin Dunbar. I'm Professor of Evolutionary Psychology at the University of Oxford. And I spend my entire life trying to understand why humans behave the way they do. Now, Robin, you've got a number named after you, the Dunbar number. What is it for people who don't know? Uh, You mean there are people that don't know? (laughs) I don't know these people. Um, <laughs> They're not in my inner circle. <laughs> exactly. So the Dunbar number really is the limit on the number of relationships, meaningful relationships. All the people, if you saw them in the departure lounge of Hong Kong Airport at three o'clock in the morning, you wouldn't hesitate to go up and say hello. And what's this number? The number is about 150. Varies a little bit with age, varies a little bit with personality varies a bit with gender, but broadly speaking, it always comes out to be around about 150. Robin's research has previously focused on friends rather than colleagues, but his new research applies the math to workplaces and organisations. And there's actually a layered structure to this uh, number with a series of circles of personal networks. Can you take us through the those layers? The Dunbar number, as it's known, this figure of 150, is actually just one of a series of layers in our social relationships. Those little groups, as it were, turn out to have very specific numbers or sizes. So if you think of yourself as the kind of stone thrown into the pond, that creates a lot of ripples going out. And those ripples get shallower and shallower, but bigger and bigger in this area, if you like, as they go away from you. And that's exactly what your social world looks like. So you have a little inner core of about five people who we're inclined to call the um, shoulders to cry on friends, because they're the people who are going to drop everything when your world falls apart and come and pick you up and put you back on your feet. Um, Then outside that, and these numbers count cumulatively, for each layer, it includes the the layers inside it. So you've got this inner layer at five, the next layer is at 15. That's been known as the sympathy group. Very, very meaningful relationships. So they're people who you really would be very upset about if they died very suddenly. The next layer is 50. I tend to think of these as your sort of regular backyard barbecue party friends. If you decided to have a bit of a bash on Saturday afternoon, these are the people you'd ask as it were and then the next layer out is the 150 they're what I sometimes call the kind of bar mitzvah weddings and funerals group because they're the people who feel they have a meaningful relationship to you you'd like them to come to your once in a lifetime event and they would want to come and then there's two more numbers 
Um, there's one at 500, which we can think of as acquaintances. A lot of the people you work with are, are in that group. You would, surely you'd, you'd go and have a beer with them after work, but you wouldn't kind of invite them home to your big party. I'm absolutely fascinated by the application of all of this amazing research that you've done into the world of work. So tell me about the figure of 150 and what happens when organisations go beyond that figure. Things just start to not work so well in that silos build up, people are more worried about if you like protecting their own backs and making sure their department survives whatever crisis the world is throwing at them. And they're less likely to go and help out, you know, some other department who kind of rings up in panic and says, listen, we're having a big problem. Can you help us out? And you know, if your organization is bigger than 150, because you lack those personalized contacts, you kind of know these people vaguely, maybe you've met them at meetings, but you don't have any obligation to them. And you're inclined to say at that point, well, listen, mate, you know, we've got our own problems over here in our department. You fix yours, we'll fix ours. Perhaps one of the most dramatic in many ways examples of how to solve this problem is Gore-Tex. There's a powerful example about Gore-Tex and Will Gore, the guy who invented the high-tech waterproof material. Being a kind of mathematician, he did some mathematical calculations and, and being very aware that the problem with these big multinational companies was fragmentation, silos building up constantly all the time. And therefore, he um, came to the conclusion that was why they were so dysfunctional, essentially. And the best way to solve that is to have much smaller groups. And he identified a figure of about 150 as ideal. So he made all his units, factory units, administrative units, whatever, just 150 in size. As the company was expanding, rather than making the factory bigger, which is what everybody does, he just built a new factory on the parking lot next door. And these factories are completely self-contained. So the board tells each factory, this is your targets for the year. But they leave the factory to essentially get on and solve that problem for themselves. They have their own sales team, their own management. But because the number's below 150, you don't need labels. So there's kind of, it, the management structure is very informal. Everybody, the only thing, uh, title they have is just Gore-Tex Associate. They're, that's the label on their, their, their coats, as it were. And, and, but everybody knows who everybody is. They then work as a team because they see themselves as a little family. It's been very, very effective. They always refer to it as a flat lattice management structures. And a lot of people have argued that one of the reasons for their success as a company is this management structure. So are you saying that with this flat lattice structure and, and keeping to this number that actually leaders might even do less, not more? Yes. I, I collaborate with two business consultants who both run a very, very high-profile leadership course for senior, senior leaders of very big companies, as it were, but also have their own, their own management consultancy. And, and they have really been trying to encourage this approach to management uh, in a big way, because the problem they recognize, as indeed every manager, senior manager recognizes, is you are just absolutely strapped for time. <laughs> uh, and crises are coming at you left, right and center. So you don't have the capacity, the bandwidth as a single individual of a big organization or a big company to handle all this stuff at the same time, you kind of have to distribute it downwards and, and have trust in your the people below you to, to do their job. And that's all about having your 
structures such that they're in small enough subunits that you know who the, the key people are and, and can have a personalized relationship with them uh, without having necessarily to know everybody. You can trust them to get on and do a decent job and give them some, some kind of bandwidth to do that. <laughs> if you try to micromanage uh, a company of 50,000 employees from, from the top, there's only one way you're going and that's uh, extinction. So, Robin, what are some other options? If you don't want to go down that uh, Gore-Tex route, if you like, then what you should think of in, is kind of substructuring your organisation into units of 150 so that you've got this coherence going on, or smaller than 150. You can have 50. That's fine. That works even better because everybody feels you know, even more friendship and obligation towards each other. People are often quite obsessed in organisations about the perfect number of teams. Do you have any thoughts on that, Robin? I think the key issue here is having the size of a team that's appropriate for the task that it has to do. If you want a committee or a team to get to a decision quickly and an effective decision, you've got to keep it small and probably it will work best if the people all are on the same page. So, you know, don't make the mistake of going, oh, gosh, we should include somebody from HR department and somebody from the finance department and somebody from the other department uh, uh, because, you know, if we don't include them, they'll feel left out. Once you have too many people, once, once the kind of backgrounds of the people are too diverse, then the coherence of the team starts to break down because you've got to explain everything to them all over again. There's some nice examples in the size of central bank committees that decide uh, bank rates, the bank rate committees around the world, that the most effective ones that minimize inflation are actually of somewhere between three and five in size. The, on the other hand, if you want a, a team to throw ideas about and do some blue skies thinking, then it actually wants to be bigger than that. And a team that's sort of around 12 to 15 works much better. And that point, you want more diverse backgrounds because it's the guy coming in from some completely different area, looking over your shoulder in the trenches, who says, yeah, but what about? And asks the question that nobody thought of asking or comes in with a completely new idea from somewhere else who tends to trigger innovations in any organizations. It's trying to keep that balance and keep the balance in the right place is critical. Some teams, it really does pay to have bigger than five, but don't make it 10 because that won't work. If you're going to have a bigger team, it needs to be around about 15. Bemuse wants to, to, to see a photograph of the um, climate warming, uh, International Climate Warming Committee. And there's about 150 people in this photograph. <laughs> These people, all they can do is stand up and preach at each other. They cannot have a meaningful discussion. And herein lies another issue that in everyday life, we can't have a conversation with more than four people in it. If you get more than four people in it, uh, in a conversation, and, and I invite you to test it, you know, I'll buy you all the best Australian red wine if that conversation with five people lasts more than about half a minute. What tends to happen is it just we just fragment. And what about our new way of working remotely, Robin? worst problem on Zoom calls because you don't have this capacity to sneak into the corner and have a quiet word with somebody. You have you end up with a, a Zoom call with four, pe four people with the loudest voices <laughs> dominating everything and everybody else 
checking their um, news feeds and, you know, and watching the cat playing in the garden and things like that. What about um, organisations who have gone through hypergrowth? So they might have started with an intimate number, Robin, but then um, just incredible scaling. What happens then? The problem is largely one of the formation of silos, particularly in the kind of high-tech industries, which have expanded like crazy, started out in a, a garage, you know, and then ended up with an enormous plot in Silicon Valley. A lot of people who've been in those kind of groupings in the early days have commented to me that there came a point when they walked into the cafeteria and they just didn't know who anybody was anymore. And at that point, they bailed out and left and went and did something else. Can I ask you, I'm going to throw a case study at you. So let's say we're dealing with a large organisation here. So we've got um, 600 people. Uh, I want you to take us through what we might do in terms of designing this organisation in relation to the concentric circles that you used in your book. So the 5, 15, 50 and 150. How might we apply that to a starting organisation which has got 600 people? So what you really need to do is to create substructuring within the organisation. And ideally, those substructures want to be at either 50 or 150 as a grouping size. You can push it a little bit. You know, if you've got 600, you could divide it into three groups of 200 maybe, and you'd probably still be okay. But one, the one thing you probably do not want to do is to have, let's say, a group of uh, 50 and a group of 150, and then a couple of groups of 100 people, because you'll find 100 simply doesn't work. If you're in between the numbers, uh-huh. something doesn't quite gel right. Really, and, and it it yeah it tends to to lead to fragmentation very quickly. Whereas if you get the numbers right, and these numbers turn out to be, and we've only really recently discovered this, they turn out to be what m- the mathematicians would call attractors in social networks. So they represent points of optimum information flow around networks. So let's go through the numbers. Tell me about five. You're only going to find fives in a business context where you have teams working on very focused projects, right? In our social world, our everyday social world, those are your very intimate best friends. They would normally consist of two close family members and two close friends and and one more from either side to make up the number. The point about that is you don't need to explain to the other guys in the group what's going on. You don't have to explain why the joke is funny. In effect, it's the flow of conversation, the speed at which a conversation (laughs) can go and the ease with which a conversation can go that makes those groups work extremely efficiently. But it's, and the risk is if you break up those teams, you break up the kind of efficiency with which, which they work. Because every time somebody new comes in, you have to start all over again, building, building relationships. Now, next number, 15. 15, and this is the kind of ideal size for batting ideas about. On a committee, say, most of the people aren't going to um, contribute that much necessarily to the discussion. That 5 and 15 tend to be these small working groups and and, uh, boards, let's say, would be the obvious one for a 15. The 50 group and the 150 group are really the engine of most organizations, probably. The key to, to which is the right one will depend on how closely the members of the group need to know how each other tick. 
Um, so a nice example of the bigger number is the Swedish government reorganized its tax collecting agencies into units such that each tax officer, best friend in the world, obviously, had only 150 people, clients they dealt with. You always knew who you were talking to when you rang up. And B, they knew instantly who you were. You know, when you um, uh, uh, rang up with a tax problem and said, I'm Jim, <laughs> they went, oh, I know who you are. I don't even need to look at your file. The problem when you organize it and get very big is you just lose control of particularly the financial cost line of sight isn't it of what's going on yes i know you yeah that's 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 the 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 word it exposes you to being basically fleeced not only from outside the company by your suppliers which happens frequently in these contexts but also inside the company because you know nobody wants to surrender their budget so they'll spend the whole budget instead of saying oh actually we don't need it all this year you know why don't somebody else have some of it back one of the problems with humans you know, the limitations of our uh, brains, if you like, and nothing more, is that we're not very good, A, at managing risk, B, at trusting other people to do their job properly, unless we know them very well, and C, calculating all the different ramifications. So a lot of the decisions that are made are very short term uh, and very limited in how they've been viewed. Robin, how did you come up with these numbers? It came about because I was trying to solve a very trivial problem in understanding the behaviour of monkey snakes, which is why they spend so much time engaged in social grooming with each other, so leafing through the fur and picking out all the bits of vegetation and things like that. I was trying to show that this was a social bonding behaviour, not just a hygienic behaviour. Um, and it occurred to me that if it really was social bonding behavior. Not only would the amount of time a species spends grooming correlate with the size of its social groups, the more more people in your group, the more people you have to groom and get round and, and bond with, but also it should correlate with the size of their brains because an argument had been made that um, the reason monkey snakes have such big brains, and obviously humans too, is that they live in very large, complicated social groups and they just need a big computer to manage all those relationships. So out of that came this relationship between social group size and brain size in monkeys and apes. And when I looked at this, I thought, well, I wonder what this predicts for human groups. So I plugged human brain sizes in and this gave the number of, of 150. I think it was something like 148.4 or something. All right. Wow. Uh, I kind of thought that was very low given that you know Sydney is the size it is, London is the size it is. <laughs> They'd send me off into the library um, in the middle of the night searching for data on uh, natural community sizes in small-scale societies, hunter-gatherers, because we spent most of our history in these very small, um, dispersed, hunter-gatherer type societies, not in living in big cities. You know, I calculated data from about 20 hunter-gatherer societies more around the world, from Australia, Africa, South America, North America. And the answer was almost exactly 150. And that turns out to be an extremely common number in both in terms of organization structure, uh, village sizes, for example, but also in terms of your 
personal social networks. So somebody collated uh, the number of friends on f- uh, 61 million Facebook pages uh, about 10 years ago, and the average is exactly 149. So yes, some people have the whole 5,000 that Facebook will allow you, but typically they tend to be professional users. Uh, most people you know, just focus on the people they actually have a relationship with. And, and then are you saying that outside the number, um, it's just harder to cultivate meaningful social connections? Yes. The problem is that to create relationships, the amount of time you invest in a relationship determines how strong, emotionally strong the relationship is and therefore how effectively it works. So if you use a metric like, would you be willing to go and you know sort of help somebody out or lend them a hundred dollars or as you go out through the layers not only do you spend less and less time with each individual but you feel less emotionally close to them robin trust is such a buzzword at the moment in organizations and what you're really drawing a beautiful connection with is trust um, depends on human connection and actually there's a limit to do with the size of our brains. Yes, and this is really the beginning and the end of of organisations, I think, because even on the small scale, and this is true in our everyday lives, everything works by trust. We can't possibly know everything and we can't possibly legislate for everything. So we have to rely on everybody else in our work world or our social world to kind of act effectively and solve problems locally. The problem is that trust comes from knowing somebody and knowing somebody comes from how much time you invest in them. And this is back to these layers and the way we focus our interactions. Now, there are ways of breaking out of that cycle because obviously what happens is, you know, once you get past 150, you're not spending enough time in the company of, uh, of individuals to get to know them. You can build those super relationships that are kind of much more anonymous by a number of practices. Things that work are exactly the same kinds of things that we use in our everyday social bonding exercise. And these are things like laughter, uh, singing and dancing together, feasting together, say eating socially, and even storytelling. Ah. And of these, I'm going to highlight singing because singing is absolutely magical. We call this the icebreaker effect. And does it depend on whether you've got a nice voice or not, Robin? No, it doesn't <laughs> matter at all. It's just doing the singing. So it's this is, you know, if you have, and we showed this experimentally, if you have a group of people who are complete strangers to do an hour's community singing. So we're not talking about Bach cantatas or, you know, Verdi operas or anything fancy like that. We're just talking about sitting around the campfire, singing Waltzing Matilda, for goodness sake. (laughs) All that old stuff. They come out of that hour of, of community singing feeling like they've known each other since primary school. So it's completely magical. I love it. I love a good sing along, Robin. And now I've got one last question. Why are friends so important to us overall? Aside from embedding us in a kind of family web of of support, friendship turns out to have enormous health benefits. And this is another reason for paying good attention to this in the workplace. The single best predictor 
of your psychological health and welfare, your physical health and welfare, and even how long you're going to live into the future is the number and quality of close friendships you have. So there's something about the things you do with friends that buffers you against many of the illnesses that life throws at us. Uh, you recover faster from surgery. You're less affected by the kind of winter flus that we all get. Best antidepressant medicine you can get. But if you think of it in terms of workplace benefits, suddenly you've got a workforce which is bouncing with energy. What this is due to is the things you do with friends, which includes things like singing and eating together and dancing and those kind of social things trigger the endorphin system. And the endorphin system has an unexpected effect that we didn't know about. It tunes the immune system. Robin, it's been an absolute pleasure. Will you be a friend of the show? Of course, anything for Australia. Robin Dunbar is Professor of Evolutionary Psychology at the University of Oxford. His new book, The Social Brain, The Psychology of Successful Groups, comes out next year. We made this on the lands of the Gadigal and Wiradjuri people. This Working Life is produced by Sarah Allerley. And if you're her friend, she says, I'll give you a call soon. I'm Lisa Leong. And until next time, love your work. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.